0: As we began
1: to discuss in previous episodes, the ocean provides a multitude of products and services for the inhabitants of this planet, just as a community or a city can provide for its inhabitants, and as such, communities hire town planners or city planners to figure out how best to lay out the areas within a community. Whether those areas are zoned residential, commercial, agricultural, or green space and parklands, And this prevents a commercial rock-crushing plant from operating next to a house or a hospital. It prevents a sewage lagoon from being next to the bakeries and the restaurants. And just like the town, the city planner, and the city plan, our bays and our greater ocean also need a plan so that we're not dumping industrial waste into our prime fishing areas or sewage adjacent to our beaches and tourist destinations. Not that those things should be happening at all, but that's another episode. Gway, hello, and welcome to Bhutan, Our Living Ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today our topic explores the details of marine spatial planning and marine spatial plans. Now, before I lose any of you, we're not talking about marine protected areas today, although we may, we may mention it once or twice. And just like a city plan is not a park, A marine spatial plan is not a marine protected area. Today's a bit of a special episode because we also have a co-host, my co-worker Blake McNeely, who's working on marine spatial planning communication within the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council, so welcome Blake. We also have two special guests today, Maxine Westhead and Jason Nog, who spent the last 20 plus years working with DFO on marine spatial planning, and that's actually a bit of a lie, but we'll discuss that later. Both Jason and Maxine generally work out of the DFO's maritime office in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, but much of our conversation is applicable across the board in all of Atlantic Canada and beyond. They'll be sharing with us some of their knowledge and interpretations on marine spatial planning and how they can better our coasts. I'm also going to get really tired of saying marine spatial planning, so we'll likely shorten that to MSP very quickly. So together, let's dive in. Well, thank you so much, Max and Jason, for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. I tried to briefly answer this in the introduction, but let's hear from the experts. There seems to be quite a bit of confusion as to what marine spatial planning is and also what it's not. Can we start with that?
2: Sure. I might take a a crack at this first, Brian. Um, Yeah, so I guess in terms of marine spatial planning, uh, there are some formal definitions around it. You know, it's really a process of analyzing and allocating uh, spatial and temporal distribution of activities. Uh, And it's trying to achieve a range of objectives. So it's trying to achieve sort of social, economic and environmental uh, objectives or goals that people have for those areas. Uh, In our case, um, you know, I think people traditionally think of it as sort of a zoning scheme. And that might be what it could ultimately become where each activity has its own place uh, and time, uh, similar to what you had mentioned about sort of the city planning where different activities are are separated based on compatibilities and finding areas that they're they're most suitable for. That might be sort of the long-term goal for where it's going. I think for us in our region, um, we are not necessarily focusing on the zoning at this point in time, but we're really focusing around um, trying to f- provide good information uh, about activities and the environment uh, in order to make good decisions by, by those people using it. Our marine spatial plan uh, will not really, you know, it's really, it's not replacing existing planning that's taking place within each of the different sectors. So fishing, oil and gas, uh, conservation, transportation. All those existing plans and he said they're sort of regulated by government will, will still be in place, and this this marine spatial plan is trying to work uh, w- across those uh, those sort of jurisdictions to provide some sort of value added. And, and part of the issue for that is that within Canada, under the current legislation, we don't really have uh, complete authority for DFO. Uh, who's playing a lead in sort of marine spatial planning program in Canada to create plans that regulate all those other activities, because there's other departments uh, of government and other uh, under different legislation that uh, that manage those activities. So we can't really come up with a plan that dictates, uh, you know, where the shipping has to go or the uh, other activities, um, marine submarine cables or whatnot can take place. So we just don't currently have that full authority to create those kind of comprehensive zoning schemes that are traditionally thought of uh, under marine spatial planning at this point. So we're looking for ways that we can uh, sort of add value and and affect some of those decisions through our process.
1: So really about the management essentially. Exactly. Um, Perfect. Thanks. Max, do you want to add to that or is that...
0: No, I think that's, that was a, that was a good uh, explanation. You know, like it is a plan, it is a process, um, and what it isn't is sort of replacing all of the existing processes and um, management authorities that we have today. So like Jason said, it's about trying to find the value added because, you know, we don't have that authority for full and complete marine spatial planning, which is typically what people jump to when they think of marine spatial planning.
1: I also mentioned in the intro that the two of you have been working in marine spatial planning for 20 plus years, which is a bit of a lie because MSP hasn't actually been around that long in Canada. And actually, as we record this, it actually hasn't officially been released in Canada yet. So let's talk a little bit about what it used to be called here and what the differences are, um, if any, and why it was brought in here.
0: Sure. Okay, great. Yeah. So integrated management is defined in the Oceans Act, right? So it it came to Canada, I guess, officially in 1996 when the Oceans Act was passed, um, and DFO has the authority or the responsibility to lead and facilitate integrated management in Canada. Integrated management is about exactly that. It's, It's about integrating sectors. It's about collaboration between everyone, so all the regulators and the users. So not just government, but also the public.
1: Collaboration. So I just wanna highlight that because as we continue to deal with ocean topics, working together as a team is the only real way that we can solve the problems that we're facing.
0: And it's about creating governance tables where you can have those management discussions with stakeholders and you know all the different authorities present. And it also aims to you know, increased transparency of decision making in that way. So, integrated management is sort of the foundation of marine spatial planning in Canada. Marine spatial planning is, I guess, the uh, what do you call it? I guess it's it's an evolution of integrated management. So, marine spatial planning has been adopted in many countries around the world. I think you know, over seventy plans are available worldwide. So, it's it's a bit of an evolution. So, Canada is now looking to MSP. And really it's just integrative management in addition to a spatial element. So integrated management plus the spatial element is really marine spatial planning with a bit of an emphasis on spatial interactions. And also marine spatial planning tends to be very future focused planning. So what is the vision for the future? How will we get there? How will we work together to ensure that the vision is realized. So it's very big picture thinking.
1: So we, we touched on this a little bit during the history of fishing in, in the last episode, but if marine spatial planning is not strictly about conservation, which is often people think that it is, how can it help out the ocean? What is, what's the benefit?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think as, as we mentioned, so marine spatial planning is a plan, but it's also the process of getting there. And I think through that process, one of the things it's striving to do is really to come up with a, a collective understanding and vision for the marine area. So that, that involves having to uh, uh, to collect those um, that sort of vision and, and people's perspectives from the different users. And that's sort of, sort of the, the foundation, I guess, of where we start from. A lot of the information that we're using and collecting and collating and being able to map. Uh, you know, that's, that's information that will allow people to hopefully make better decisions and reduce some of the conflicts that might occur in a spatial sort of environment uh, between different overlapping activities.
1: For example, here, we talked about how wind farms and other offshore energy. So, for instance, we don't want a wind farm in a shipping lane because a bit of fog or a windstorm could spell disaster. And similarly, perhaps if there's a prime scallop fishing area, you don't want drilling fluids or fuel seeps affecting the flavor of those organisms.
2: So that's sort of one of the one of the primary benefits, I think, is really having a, a clear understanding of where things are taking place, when they're taking place, the effects that they're, that they're having on both the environment and on other users. And so having better information, more timely information, uh, more accessible information will allow those types of... Uh, those types of things to to take place.
1: So we're dealing with the ocean. That should be pretty obvious by now. But we have Canada as a whole. So that's a pretty big ask to get a national marine spatial plan for such diverse coastlines. We're talking three vastly different ocean basins. So generally, we're dealing with smaller, more regional areas, whether that's bays or even the large ocean management areas known as Lomas, again, large ocean management areas. And generally, ocean-related stuff is still delegated to the federal government, namely Fisheries and Oceans, DFO, but also Transport Canada, because we've got to ship all that stuff, and then NRCan as well, Natural Resource Canada. But the provinces still have a stake in the offshore areas, including what's under the seabed, such as for oil and gas exploration, right? And then there's also Indigenous claims, and not everybody always sees eye-to-eye on what they want in their waters, in their coastal waters. We often point a lot of fingers at DFO, but it's not really that simple. So, how do we navigate this jurisdictional hurdle, this almost nightmare?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's very complicated. You are right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are a number of jurisdictions and authorities at play uh, in Canada. So, while DFO is definitely the lead for marine spatial planning, we're definitely not the sole regulator. So there's like you say, there's shipping, there's oil and gas development, tourism, military, aquaculture, all of these different authorities with marine spatial planning. They need to be recognized um, and respected in a way. Um, Marine spatial planning isn't going to come in and just subsume all of these these different uh, authorities. So. It is about getting everybody to work together, which also isn't as simple uh, as it may seem. And capacity is a huge problem, especially with, uh, you know, the recent COVID situation. It's redirected a lot of resources to COVID response, right? So communities are grappling with that um, and really don't have time for other things. So it has uh, sort of put us a little bit behind schedule, which is which is fine. But DFO is working with the other federal departments. Um, we have an, something called the Atlantic Coordination Table. So there were a handful of federal departments that got funded for marine spatial planning. Um, the provinces, you know, didn't receive direct funding. Um, there has been some some dedicated grants and contributions funding for First Nations and Indigenous organizations that has been very specifically um, trying to build capacity. So getting people, um, you know, employed and, and working on marine spatial planning and being able to, you know, have the time to think and participate and uh, communicate with us uh, is one way that. Um, is one i guess really big benefit that we see uh, with marine spatial planning is trying to build that that local capacity here in the region but yeah it's uh you know canada is divided into 13 bioregions or you know large marine ecosystems i guess that essentially are the planning units for canada so those planning units are in the East Coast, they're they're kind of aligned with the DFO administrative units, so the Maritimes region, the Gulf, um, and Gulf of St. Lawrence, and then the Newfoundland uh, shelves. And those planning units are used as the basis for marine protected area planning or uh, conservation network planning. And those are the, I guess, the units that we're using for marine spatial planning as well. Because like you say, we can't, we can't compile all the information for Canada and come up with one, you know, huge marine spatial plan for Canada. We have to break it down into more manageable units, and then even within a region, we still may have to break it down because it's really complicated to look at all of the ecological elements, all of the human uses. So breaking it down into smaller, bite-sized pieces can be a really uh, practical way of approaching things sometimes.
1: And jurisdictionally, that might also help out a little bit too, that yeah. you're not grabbing everyone at the same time to have, sure. have their input on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. I think Blake's going to take the next couple there.
3: So if we go deeper, what goes into a marine spatial plan, what goods and services will be managed, and to what capacity? Okay, well, I think as I had mentioned previously, the uh, the marine
2: spatial plan does not really replace some of the existing management plans. So some of the ways that specific fisheries are managed, for example... Uh, or other things within the marine environment, many of which are not actually regulated by uh, the, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So there's, there's the, uh, the sense that the Marine Spatial Plan will be sort of a layer, hopefully a, a sort of a value-added layer on top of that that provides some degree of coordination and information to, to better support some of those activities in the, in the marine environment. Um, we are working on something called the Marine Atlas, which will be a hopefully user-friendly and accessible uh, platform, uh, sort of a GIS or geographic information system kind of product that will allow different users, uh, both government and and others, uh, fishers, industry, community groups, um, any anybody really, to access that information to to learn more about uh, some of the environmental features, some of the activities, where they're taking place, when they're taking place um which will will again help provide the type of information for their own planning purposes or their own studies and uh and that's really the you know a large focus of of the plan will be on on supporting better decisions and decision support um there's also a series of specific decision support tools that are being developed um looking at sort of uh, a range of different things but uh for example, there's one um, related on assessing sort of the effects between different activities and the environmental features of the area. So based on sort of sensitivities, there'll be sort of a, a tool that can be quickly used to sort of screen projects, for example, um, in terms of where it's located and what effects it might have on different environmental features in that area. So it's, uh, it's things like that that, are, that will hopefully form the bulk of the plan uh, as well as, um, uh, you know, ways that we are trying to engage with uh, a range of partners on the process and create a, create a degree of transparency around our approach
3: to uh, doing so. Perfect. As we discuss the use of oceans, where does spill response fit into MSP, specifically oil in this case?
2: Yeah, I can maybe take a crack at this again because I was involved with this a bit earlier, uh, including with your organization, Blake. So the spill response is uh, specifically sort of a regime that's been created to deal with spills from, uh, you know, in the marine environment of oil, largely from uh, vessels. And um, it's it's very consistent with marine spatial planning. Uh, it's largely focused around assessing these sort of uh, physical vulnerabilities. So, for example, if a, if a ship were to spill oil near the coastal zone or in the marine environment where is that oil going to be heading toward and uh, what are the sort of sensitivities of the environment that it's going to potentially impact based on the type of oil
1: you'd be looking at um where the where the sensitive areas are and then trying to map that as well or just where the oil would flow
2: yeah so having a knowledge of both of those things both uh you know projection of where the oil is, is heading toward but then also knowing if that oil were to come to shore in this location, what are its sensitivities uh, to that particular product, for example? So part of it's knowing that sort of sensitivity aspect. And then part of the oil spill response uh, program is to also develop some capacity around responding to that. So having the right people come to, the, to a table to say, we know that there are you know, particular nesting habitat for birds here. Or uh, in the case of indigenous organizations, potentially there's some significant habitats or, or areas that have a special concern that have been used traditionally, that if a response is, is, uh, is able, that those areas can be uh, taken, special consideration can be taken to help protect those areas. So it's sort of a, it's both understanding the vulnerabilities and then also kind of coordinating uh, how people can respond to those in terms of uh, in terms of trying to minimize the impacts. And uh, a lot of that's coordinated by uh, the Canadian Coast Guard, but there's also response organizations, uh, industry-supported response organizations that help with cleanup operations, for example. Yes, and we had worked with your organization, the the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council, to try to, uh, you guys had done quite a bit of mapping work around areas that uh, your community members had felt were significant, so that that information, you know, if there were a spill event, uh, your group could have that information on hand to come to a table to say, you know, yes, we know something about the birds, but these, this is the information that's important to us based on our community members. This should be taken into consideration in terms of how to respond and where to respond. And, and if if you had to prioritize areas, uh, it's good to have the people with that knowledge at the table. So the well spill response regime, I guess, getting back to the question is, very much a uh, uh, part of the of MSP.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, as we discuss what goes into a marine spatial plan, these were essentially first developed in Australia back in the 1980s as a means of resolving conflicts of interest over the conservation and use of the Great Barrier Reef. And what they had determined was the prerequisite for a successful marine spatial plan was that all the stakeholders groups and the local communities were involved in the planning process now i'm going to also add rights holder groups here as well to a certain extent that's what we are doing by that i mean through these episodes that's one of the goals it's to let you the listener know what's happening here in our waters coastal and offshore but is that happening here or is that really a lot easier said than is done
0: Yes, uh, it is easier said than done. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> um, I hope that your listeners by now get the sense that this is a very big process. It's a big process. It's, you know, if we're talking about a plan for the whole bioregion, that's like a lot of uh, a lot of information to consider and a lot of interest to consider, right? Like, like you're saying in the question. So, We're working right now on a phased approach. So right now, like I said, a little bit behind because of COVID, but focusing on trying to build the capacity of the First Nations and the Indigenous organizations to participate, speaking directly with the other federal departments and the provinces, like that's our first priority right now, Um, trying to get at that capacity issue and getting grants and contributions agreements in place uh, is a big part of that. and then eventually though so our timeline which we haven't talked about yet is to have a final plan by 2024. so ideally we're shooting to have a draft plan around 2023 so that we have a year to you know talk about it and and uh, modify it based on that's that's pretty soon that is pretty soon um so by by the time we get to a draft uh we we do hope that it will include um, input from all those, you know, say industry groups, aquaculture, fishing. Uh, But right now our focus is um, sort of getting the federal, provincial, First Nation, indigenous organizations, um, building those relationships now uh, in order so that we can go broader uh, over the next year or two. So yeah, eventually we do wanna see all of those interests reflected. Um, But like I said, Well, like Jason said earlier, because we're not shooting for this comprehensive zoning plan that says this activity here and this activity over there, um, we don't anticipate being very controversial, right? Um, So, you know, this will be sort of a foundational document that will have lots of context, lots of uh, regional information that sectors can use to plan their activities that they might not have access to that information now so it's about getting information and access to information to support uh, sector planning and management right now so so yeah that is um like i said eventually we do hope to see everybody's voice represented in the plan um, but it's uh, it's a bit of an evolution. And, you know, this first plan that we have, we'll just, we're considering it sort of a first-generation marine spatial plan, and maybe eventually we will get to comprehensive zoning, um, you know, with all the authorities at the table, but uh, it's a bit of an evolution, and we'll have to see uh, where we can get sort of after this first-generation plan.
1: Great.
3: Now let's zoom out a little bit. Given that Canada borders three ocean basins, the Atlantic, Pacific, and Arctic, will these plans vary depending on the specific needs of each coast? And as we mentioned earlier, there are various departments involved in building national plans. How do we how do the various departments collaborate to build something that will be successful?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So there won't be one overarching national plan, but of course there will be some national program consistency. So we're building a plan. We're also creating a process and sort of in government terms, this is considered a program. So we're delivering a program. Um, So the Marine Spatial Planning Program is, you know, working at the national level to, you know, develop some consistency between regions to make sure that, you know, we don't go off in all different directions. Uh, But at the same time, each region is so unique in terms of the context and the activities that are happening and even like the for example the co-management arrangements in the arctic uh, you know are very different than um out on the east coast or the west coast so each plan will be tailored for the region um, with some sort of foundational baseline consistency across canada but it is but it is about you know, in terms of collaboration and building something that will be successful, it's all about building the relationships. So DFO is is trying to lead, um, you know, the collaborative relationships and developing those uh, over this uh, you know first couple of years uh, in order that in order to get to something, uh, a plan that will be useful for everyone.
1: Awesome.
3: As we go down the planning road, what is the permanence of a marine spatial plan once it's completed? Are they considered an ever-changing work in progress that evolves, or are they set in stone? Similarly, how would a change in government affect them?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think in terms of uh, the marine spatial plan, like, like many things, it's, it's a bit of a process. So there is a sense that it's a, a bit of a cycle that gets revisited and reviewed on a regular basis. That's kind of our intention with them. So we do anticipate that they will change over time. Uh, we anticipate as people's needs and activities and interests and, and insight and the information changes, then then naturally the, the plans would need to change as well. Uh, for example, there may have been activities that maybe 15, 20 years ago were not really being considered in the marine environment, and, and now they're being considered. So I think something like, uh, you know, offshore wind might be an example in Canada of something that wasn't really being seriously considered in the past, but but now there's work actively taking place, for example, to, to start planning for that. Um, and so there are things like that that will obviously require the plans to be updated over time. There's also the sense that, uh, you know, potentially under the marine spatial planning process, there may be sub plans or for you know like maybe uh, certain geographic areas within Nova Scotia for example that uh, depending on the the localized interests that there, there, that there may be developed for, for those areas uh, that and maybe they'll deal with you know specific conflicts or specific issues that that might be of, of interest a shared interest so yeah I, I do feel that the plans will change over time they're not they're not cast in stone. Uh, they will need to be revisited. In terms of your question about, uh, you know, would a change in government affect those plans?
1: What Blake meant by change in government is when a different political party gets elected, say going from liberal to conservative or NDP, the reason it's important is that, as we've seen in the past, that these political changes have had profound effects on legislation, namely in our case, the Fisheries Act.
2: Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, the government does change over time, and sometimes the priorities have have. We've we've noticed in the past, the priorities have changed. Um, but uh, we're hoping at this point that uh, the marine spatial program will, will be established and uh, work will be continued uh, along these along these veins.
1: Awesome. So I've really tried to avoid the elephant in the room, as promised. But as we lead into the next episode. Where and how does the conservation side of it fit into MSP? And I'm, I'm not strictly speaking about parks and protected areas here, but what else will go into it in terms of conservation?
0: Yeah, so this is a big question, and I'm glad you're dedicating <laughs> uh, another um, episode uh to the topic so i guess in terms of you know looking at the parks and protected areas first so dfo is one of three federal departments that are able to create marine protected areas so there's parks canada dfo and environment climate change canada and there's of course also recently discussion about indigenous protected and conserved areas and what those may look like here in the in um, atlantic canada so that's another element that we need to consider
1: IPCAs are indigenous protected and conservation areas. I'm really glad that Max brought this up as I see this as a great tool, a wave of the future. So hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit mo- more about this in the next episode.
0: So conservation, we see conservation as a sector, say like, um, like aquaculture or fishing. It is in a way, a use, right? You're, you're, you're setting aside areas. Um, where activities are reduced, right, to promote biodiversity, recovery of species, conservation generally. So it is, you know, like other sectors, there are processes around that. Um, When areas of interest are announced, there's a process that's undertaken that includes, um, you know, assessment and analysis and advisory committees. So that will all continue. Um, In terms of planning for future conservation and designing uh, like a blueprint for conservation for the future, also known as conservation network planning, that will sort of be supported by marine spatial planning. So we'll use those, those relationships to support the development of that draft design. And of course, it's a big part of what the government of Canada is working on right now, and it's tied to those 25% by 2025 and the 30% by 2030 targets.
1: Again, I don't want to discuss this too much, but that's 25% protection by 2025 and 30% of our ocean protected in some way by 2030.
0: So we've hit the 10% target and exceeded it, but now we're on to bigger and more. So so MSP will play a role there for sure. Um, It's also about, you know, marine spatial planning is there to support. Uh, So we've talked about how different activities are happening in different areas, and it's about marine spatial planning will provide information so that we can make the best decision possible as to what activities go where and when. So, for instance, new activities, like Jason just mentioned, offshore wind, there's a great opportunity there to say, okay, where's the most appropriate place for this, given the current landscape of use and also the ecological features. So so it's about appropriateness of uh, place, and that can also contribute to conservation in a way by minimizing impacts.
1: Right. That's a, a great lead into our next episode, so thank okay. you for that. <laughs> Um, so is there anything offhand that you think that the public should know about MSP that we haven't yet chatted about? And you can, you can both answer this question if you'd like.
0: Yeah, I've got a couple of things, but you go ahead, Jason.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, um, I, I guess I hope through this interview that, uh, we've, we've been able to portray the sense that ocean management, which is kind of broadly what we're discussing is quite complicated. There's a lot of, uh, participants, there's a lot of jurisdictions at play, different government departments that have some authority to manage different activities under different pieces of legislation.
1: And to add to that, they don't always agree.
2: And DFO is trying to, you know, through this program, uh, is trying to facilitate a process that the success of which depends on people participating. So it's very difficult to, to have success if people are not uh, able to be involved, or not willing to be involved. So I think the process will be sort of as good as the collective, uh, collective effort of, of those participating. So we're hoping to create processes that are accessible, that are transparent, that are not too onerous to participate in. And, uh, and we think that will hopefully affect, the, we'll, we'll end up with a better product at the end yeah. if we can do something like that. And we're looking forward to, uh, to people participating
0: add on to that is that one of the reasons why it's so complex is not only the three-dimensional nature of the ocean versus like if you're comparing it to land the land planning city planning and not putting one use inappropriately next to another use it's not quite the same in the ocean because first of all the ecosystem is much more dynamic right so it's you, you can't pin things down like you can in a forest say um but it's also that there's no ownership there is no ownership in the ocean and it's and the government of Canada is doing this on behalf of the Canadian public right to support better management and planning and without that ownership it's really that is in essence why it's so complicated and of course then you've got the overlapping jurisdiction well one department's responsible for one activity another one's responsible for a different one and the conversations aren't always happening at the right time and place. So it is uh, incredibly complicated. Awesome. I just wanted to go back to the why question. So why we're doing marine spatial planning. And and I wanted to just talk about three different things. So one is that one of the whys is to um, basically enable better collaboration when it comes to ocean management. So building those relationships, um, you know, we spent, DFO spent a lot of time and invested a decade into the Eastern Scotian Shelf Integrated Management Initiative, you know, about 10 or 15 years ago. And those relationships were sort of the number one uh, success, you know, having all of those uh, sectors sitting down at the same table. So trying to, you know, rebuild some of those relationships and uh, enable better collaboration in management is one of the key things. Another reason, another why is to support diverse marine interests. So the ecological interests, the, the social interests, the cultural interests, and also the economic interests, right? So trying to balance and support all of those things. Um, you know, sometimes there is conflict there, but if we, if we build those relationships as the foundation, you know, we can have the conversations at the right time and place to help uh, support that. And also, you know, the recent push on the the blue economy strategy and building back blue, building back better, Um, you know, we need to have the foundational pieces in place in order to do that appropriately. And then finally, creating tools for ocean planning. So marine spatial planning will help uh, provide really strong foundational information so that, you know, all the different sectors have access to the same information um, to help uh, support their planning. And then um, the other thing I, I wanted to mention was just, so our program, the Marine Spatial Planning Program here, we've divided into basically four elements, which might help your listeners sort of break it down. Cause you know, when you think Marine Spatial Planning, it's a big process, it's a big plan. So breaking it down into pieces helps. So one of them is governance. We've already talked about, you know, the relationships and and why they're so important. The other is the the Atlas. So it's basically, we're building an interactive online web mapping tool. So you can go online, you can see the map of Nova Scotia and all the waters around it. You can zoom in and out and you can click data layers on and off. So you can see where all of the, the key activities are, where those key ecological features are, and if, you're, if you have GIS expertise, you could maybe um, download some of that data or upload some of your data and, and interact with it that way.
1: Now to clarify, the mapping tool will be available for all of Eastern Canada, not just in Nova Scotia, of which they hope to have ready by March, 2022.
0: So that's a key um, outcome that we think will be a real um, sort of flagship of marine spatial planning and really help uh, decision-making and then we're also looking to create decision support tools so you know looking at use use conflict analysis and uh, like conflict against human uses between human uses and also conflicts between say human uses and ecological components so just general decision support tools to help uh, with um, project assessments and risk assessments and then finally the plan so the plan is just one element and, and, you know, the final output obviously, but, um, it's just those four sort of key streams of work is what we're focused on for the next five, well, for the next three years.
1: <laughs> awesome. That's a really good summary actually. So, so thank you for that. Great. Um, and, and to the two of you and, and for Blake as well, my co um, thanks so much for being here with us today and, and sharing your insight on this very important topic that, uh, will thankfully lead into another interesting topic next week.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks for having us. Yeah,
2: I, sh- I think you guys should be commended for your efforts to uh, communicate these types of topics to, to your community members. We, we really appreciate this yeah. this opportunity.
1: Oh, Thank you. Well, there we have it. That concludes our episode for today. If you've got questions or you want more information on marine spatial planning, please feel free to contact either myself or Blake, who will be working specifically on marine spatial planning communication now also remember to join us next time as we discuss a tiny but probably the most debated portion of marine spatial planning and that is of marine protected areas mpas as well i hope to touch on ipcas a little bit indigenous protected and conservation areas well I'll
2: injured well
1: Executive producer for the Utah and Our Living Ocean series are Roger Hunka and Vanessa Mitchell with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council. Narrative and editing by your host, Brian Martin. Today's special guests were co-host Blake McNeely and interviewees Maxine Westhead and Jason Nog. The song Broken Read in English, written by George Edward Cheverie, performed by Clio and Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Elder Catherine Sorby. Production support provided by the Government of Canada. Specifically, Transport Canada's Indigenous and Local Communities Engagement and Partnership Program, the Canada's Ocean Protection Plan. All rights reserved. Coming
3: water
2: Injured Can you hear the Cry high above the storms of